Department of Homeland Security's Inspector General is suing the Council of Inspectors General on integrity and efficiency. Joseph Kafari claims Siggy's Integrity Committee is harassing him with endless probes. It's not the first time Kafari has bristled at oversight from Siggy and others. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And, Justin, I guess you can't make this stuff up. What is this unusual lawsuit all about here? So Kafari and some of his top aides are suing the Siggy's Integrity Committee over what they say is a campaign of distraction and harassment that Kafari has been enduring. He claims since he assumed the IG position, DHS IG position, back in July 2019. The lawsuit alleges many of the complaints investigated by Siggy's Integrity Committee stem actually from Kafari's efforts to reform DHS OIG. And he's saying that these complaints are causing substantial interference with his ability to carry out his official duties. He's being represented by a law firm that describes itself as viewing the administrative state as a threat to the Constitution. And so they're actually taking aim at the constitutionality of the Integrity Committee as part of this suit. So it's a pretty, pretty unusual one here having one IG going up against his fellow IGs here. Yeah, and I sense there's a little bit of Trump, non-Trump issue on this because he did come in in the midway point of the Trump administration. So there's always that. And who specifically are the defendants in the Kafari suit? Members of the Siggy Integrity Committee. That includes Kevin Winters, Amtrak's Inspector General, who serves as chairman of the Integrity Committee, and Robert Storch, DOD's Inspector General. He was actually just confirmed recently, who serves as vice chairman of the Integrity Committee. And there are also several other IGs who serve on the committee and are also defendants in this case. Now, Siggy declined to comment on the complaint beyond saying they're aware of it, and they look forward to working with the Department of Justice on the matter. The lawsuit aims to cut off really any current or future inquiries by the Integrity Committee into Kafari and his aides' actions. And it, as I mentioned before, it challenges the lawfulness of the Integrity Committee itself. And you are reporting there's a history here. What has Kafari allegedly done in Siggy's Integrity Committee's view? These two have been at odds quite a bit previously. Yeah, so the Integrity Committee basically exists to take complaints against IGs and and their top staff and then either investigate them or set them aside or refer them to the Department of Justice in some cases or whatever else. Actually, the Integrity Committee has had to investigate 63 cases where they've sent requests for information to Kafari and his aides since September 2019. The complaint states that about half of those have been closed with no action or any adverse findings against Kafari, but 13 remain pending. And there are also 18 supplemental inquiries that are still standing out there. Back in October 2020, Kafari actually sent a letter to the Integrity Committee, essentially claiming he's a whistleblower who made protected disclosures to Congress and the Integrity Committee about serious misconduct that he claims to have uncovered at DHS OIG. The Integrity Committee was in, was actually investigating Kafari at the time, some complaints that were sent back against him for investigating that misconduct. And so Kafari then pushed back against the Integrity Committee in that letter, claiming that they're biased against him just for investigating him. So there's been some back and forth dating way back to 2020 when Kafari first started. Yeah, it sounds almost like spy versus spy if they weren't talking about it. And what 
are the details of the current probes into Kafari from Siggy? What are they saying he did? The lawsuit, interestingly, it's it's Kafari's complaint, but it actually sheds some light on the, the complaints against him. As I mentioned, 63 requests for information from the Integrity Committee to Kafari and his aides over the last four years. That's a pretty substantial amount for one IG. The complaint actually shows that the Integrity Committee is actively probing the situation around the missing Secret Service texts from January 6, uh, 2021, from the Capitol riot. The Integrity Committee actually sent Kristen Fredericks, chief of staff to Kafari, a request for information on those missing Secret Service texts as recently as April 3rd, just a day before the lawsuit was filed in the Eastern District of Virginia. So, There's some back and forth going on right now over these missing Secret Service texts, what Kafari and his staff presumably knew about this, and and the Integrity Committee is going after that. Now, I should mention that John Vecchio, the senior litigation counsel for Kafari, says that the Secret Service situation is not what's driving this. He says it's the relentless drumbeat of different allegations that are taking up Kafari's time. So that's that's the counter there. Right, sure. And anything having to do with January 6th, of course, that's like throwing baking soda into vinegar. The whole thing is going to bubble up all over the place. So what's going to happen next here? And are some of the good government groups weighing in on this? There must be people outside taking up sides here. For sure. Uh, the, the Project on Government Oversight, as, as you know, has actually called for Kafari to be fired for a range of different reasons. And they're saying that this case here that Kafari has brought forward threatens to upend independent oversight of IGs because that's the whole point of Siggy and the Integrity Committee. They've called for him to be fired over these Secret Service text situation because Democrats in Congress and, of course, Pogo alleged that Kafari knew about this for as much as a year, knew about the missing Secret Service texts and didn't investigate them and didn't tell anyone for up to a year. That's the issue there. And as I mentioned at the top, the Integrity Committee's constitutionality is being challenged here as part of this lawsuit. You know, it's not a big committee. It's it's supported by about four full-time staff in addition to the folks who lead it. Last year, they opened 80 cases and closed 67 Folks I talk to say they have have a reputation for actually not doing much of anything about oversight of IGs as opposed to what Kafari is saying, but that's that's just the reputation so far. They're going after the integrity committee here. It'll be interesting to see how this case shapes oversight of the IGs or doesn't as it goes forward. What do we know about what Kafari is seeking in the lawsuit to enjoin them from probing him or is he seeking damages he's not seeking damages he's seeking to enjoin them from probing him both current and future probes to cut those off he is taking issue with the fact that he has he and his aides have to represent themselves in their personal capacity when they have to answer to probes from the integrity committee this is somewhat of a common practice having you know you can't rely on agency attorneys to defend yourself you have to rely on your own personal attorney he's saying that's not fair So that's at issue here. And then, as I mentioned, the lawsuit takes issue with the Integrity Committee's structure and funding, alleging it is an unconstitutionally structured entity. Because of the presence of Amtrak's IG and others, those aren't presidentially appointed folks. And so they're saying that the Integrity Committee violates the Appointments Clause of the Constitution. Right. So there's a lot of different things going on here. You might say he feels railroaded by Amtrak's IG. <laughs> I think that's a good one, yeah. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And be sure to check out that story at federalnewsnetwork.com.
Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did. As a matter of fact, as I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field? And what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in, and she would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. That, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, It had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. 
that never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations. But you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And you know, I flirted with a couple of them. And I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me. I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have, you mentioned Horace Mann, I don't know if if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released, and that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness toward the society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire 
Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story, and it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to, to go as far as you have, and you're still going. Well, uh, I, I have a takeaway in, in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, I the way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? brilliant. <laughs> And um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.